welcome to Physician Interrupted podcast and blog. I'm Dr. Kernan Mannion, and we are covering part five of a series on the matrix of clinician distress. And in this part, we are considering litigation stress as well as stress related to dealing with the medical regulatory therapeutic complex which we'll explain below. Now, it turns out that this is going to be more than a five-part series. The feedback I got on the earlier pieces in the series suggested that I try to keep the articles more manageably readable in one sitting. And truth be told, this is rather heavy-duty stuff, which makes shorter articles certainly more psychologically palatable, digestible. In this piece, we cover two quite major sources of distress, but which are seldom written about in the context of the overall picture of clinician distress. After this one, the ensuing piece, part six, will examine one of the least talked about, that of discrimination and the bully culture of medicine and the insidiously toxic stress both of these cause. And within that piece, or perhaps in a separate wrap-up piece, we'll explore implications of this distress matrix for the very viability of medicine as a profession and consider some potential approaches. Litigation stress. So where does litigation stress fit in the overall clinician distress syndrome cloud? Now, understand that all externally originating events are best understood as stressors. The threat or even actuality of malpractice litigation alleging that you are at fault for a major injury or death is one such type of stress causing significant ill ease. A diffuse mood state consisting of multiple concurrent emotions going on all at once. And after all, to be accused of such especially in the case of a patient's death, is close to being accused of murder. Now, the reality of the events that transpired in that malpractice event or alleged malpractice event and the portrayal of those events by a dramatically aggressive plaintiff's attorney are two entirely different worlds. As we know, a court of law is not the same as a truth seeking forum. As is well recognized in the world of litigation, and truly courses are taught on it, the more dramatic and persuasive, the more touching to the jurors and the judges' heartstrings, the more favorable for the plaintiff. This litigation genre is premised on manipulating opinion, using dramatization and embellishment, and sometimes even frank dishonesty in the factual portrayal. And these are the ruling determinants of the court's decision, not the truth of the matter. If truth mattered, all malpractice cases would be independently investigated, and then from there, a case's merit would be determined by an independent panel. And the likelihood is that most cases would never proceed to trial. Now, all stress that results in some psychological impact has manifestations in one of three primary domains. And these would seem to be apparent, but it's worthwhile being reminded of these. The first is 
they show up in mental domains, and that includes both the emotional and the cognitive dimension. They show up physically, i.e. in the somatic dimension, and they show up in the behavioral domain. That is, you're performing some sort of an action in response to the stress, for example, punching a wall or something like that. Malpractice litigation against you is a high-intensity, psychologically complex stress event. For our purposes here, right now, let's just name that litigation stress is a major stress event, one that almost invariably engenders an intense amount of anxiety, hurt, and anger, and may also intensify shame if one had any degree of plausible culpability in the event. And nearly nearly invariably concurrent with that is the experience of unfairness of the allegation and the malpractice litigation process itself. One feels falsely accused. In this process where one is not the prime cause of a poor outcome, the experience of so many docs is betrayal. My belief in fairness and in giving my best effort to my care is now table-turned into a wrongful accusation of negligent or even intentional harm and an implication that I am a defective or dangerous doc. And meanwhile, I have to take these allegations stoically and can't respond to their unfairness. This is a form of moral injury. And here, instead of shame, which would be understandable if I were fully and exclusively capable or culpable, which is seldom the case, I feel a sense of rage, of indignation, an overwhelming fear and dread. But in circumstances like this, where does that rage and fear go? Almost invariably, it's held inside, and you can understand the consequences of that mentally and physically and behaviorally. All those intense negative emotions that I just mentioned drain our emotional bank account. We all have an emotional bank account that we draw on. And as we've seen previously, a drained emotional bank account leaves little to go around for compassion. It's hard to feel compassionate or even emotionally available when you're being paraded around as a pariah and a menace to mankind. And so that stressor, the totality of the psychological stress impact resulting from this one litigation event, often dragging out interminably over time, rapidly depletes one's energy. And thus, it increases fatigue. And fatigue is burnout element number one. It also causes one to be preoccupied, distracted, mentally tied up, and therefore more removed from active clinical engagement, whether with the patient or the team, or for that matter, even one's own chosen field. One, they want to distance themselves from the field itself. And therefore, what we see here is disengagement. And that is burnout element number two. And then we also see that one's quality and productivity and certainly one's sense of self-efficacy, of self-worth, are bound to be affected. And that gives one a sense of reduced sense of accomplishment. And that turns out to be burnout criterion number three. 
And so what we see here is an overlap with all of the core criteria of the Maslach burnout inventory. And so it's understandable why these two would be confused. Now, they can add to each other, but they are separate phenomena. Now, here's the intriguing thing that very few are examining in their understanding of the causality and phenomenology of burnout. I want to mention it here because it's uh, quite freshly apparent. In most people's conceptualization of the classic burnout syndrome, the one that really led to the exploration of burnout in the profession of medicine, is that the phenomenology, the burnout phenomenology, is really seen as a progressive whittling down of one's overall energy, one's psychological energy, one's chi, by the inherently intense and, and relentlessly stressful nature of the work and its universe of demands. In fact, what's only now beginning to be acknowledged is that whereas before Burnett was predominantly conceptualized as some deficiency of clinician coping, i.e. you couldn't take the heat. Progressively, docs are saying, hey, it's not my capacity to handle stress. It's an overwhelmance of the stress capacitance of anyone's coping. Docs who are experiencing burnout are not stressed because they can't handle stress. They're stressed because there's a tsunami of stress. And it is a multi-causal, multi-dimensional stress domain uh, assault that even the most hardened, stress-hardened, can't endure for long. And insisting that it's a clinician deficiency syndrome is not only erroneous, it creates its own moral injury component by turning the tables and concealing the reality of the stress assault on the clinician. So how impactful is litigation stress in the matrix of clinician distress? I think it stands apparent major. Enough to cause docs to become bona fide mentally and physically ill over and to make them want to leave the profession in hurt, in disgust, in rage. Can litigation stress contribute to compassion fatigue? Yes. Burnout? We saw that, yes. Moral injury, yes. Can it even feel psychologically traumatic and result in PTSD, yes. Can it lead to or even worsen a clinical mood syndrome that one might be experiencing, such as anxiety or depression, yes, most definitely. So as we see, litigation stress causes its own sequelae and at the same time, contributes to other development syndromes, other syndromes uh, uh, that uh, can develop as a result uh, of that stress. Now, MRTC stress. If you followed Physician Interrupted in the organization which it's the blog for, CPR, the Center for Physician Rights, this cryptic acronym is pretty well familiar to you. It stands for Medical Regulatory Therapeutic Complex. I and colleagues conceptualized a power structure system that, when considered as an integrated system, plays an extraordinarily powerful role in determining the viability of a physician's career. Our article, entitled Systematic Abuse and Misuse of Psychiatry in the Medical Regulatory Therapeutic Complex, and that is available 
uh, linked to in the article uh, on Physician Interrupted, describes a collaborative effect amongst multiple players in the administrative regulatory arena of healthcare whose actions separately and even more so combined can exert immense life and death power over a physician's career. While not limited to these entities, the MRTC conventionally includes state medical licensing boards, physician health programs and their quote-unquote therapeutic contractors, close quote, and so-called fitness for duty impairment evaluation and treatment facilities and credentialing entities, a rather sizable network within this stress entity. So please see the article, Systematic Abuse and Misuse of Psychiatry in the Medical Regulatory Therapeutic Complex, and it's freely downloadable, and you'll see the link in the article. Now, as has been seen in numerous articles recently, physicians are very fearful of acknowledging any so-called weakness that might bring them to the attention of a medical board or their program or a so-called physician health program. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago called uh, To Heal or Not to Heal Physician, That is the Question, and it delves into these multiple concerns that physicians have. And that article is also uh, linked to in the uh, written article. And by law, and I'm not a lawyer, by the way, but by law, there should be no employer or licensing agency concerned about whether a person is currently seeking mental health services or has in the past. These are of no consequence to one's ability to currently perform one's job. However, it has been documented and it's been well known to be present for a number of years that almost half of all state medical boards in the United States are asking questions on their licensing and renewal applications that are impermissible under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the same seems likely to be true of credentialing agencies, that is, the healthcare institutions which employ physicians and provide staff privileges. These people may be in violation of the ADA. Now, it's not just the intrusiveness of the questions themselves that's problematic. Okay? Asking questions about one's mental health history and treatment or substance use, nor is it the, simply the high, highly confidential nature of the material that is being asked about, but rather it's that these questions almost invariably generate an automatic referral to the exclusively contracted, affiliated state physician health program, which then may conduct an invasive psychiatric consultation, which appears to be in violation of ADA as well, and may deprive the physician of their rights to privacy and non-intrusiveness. The integrity of such evaluations itself may be highly questionable, and increasingly there seems to be a very powerful self-serving motivation by these agencies to refer to an exclusive internal network. 
diagnostic conclusions and recommendations derived from the so-called fitness for duty evaluations or screening evaluations performed by the PHP under coercion may then result in a virtual order and then turned into a real order by the board to submit to a prohibitively costly evaluation at one of their preferred, open quote, close quote, preferred out-of-state assessment programs in their select network using non-standardized assessment instruments. The findings of these non-objective evaluations may then be used to compel the physician into a treatment program, which which then must be paid entirely out-of-pocket cash. And compliance with this is mandatory, enforced by the board's police powers, under a threat of loss of license and public humiliation. Surely, one can appreciate the stress this might cause. I and colleagues have found in speaking with over a thousand physicians cumulatively that there are no due process controls in place to prevent abuse of this quasi-psychiatric, quasi-legal evaluation process. And thus, physicians are extremely reticent to seek help as they know that they may be asked about receiving such help on their licensure application. And acknowledging such on an application could be the death knell of their careers. That state medical boards, credentialing entities like hospitals, and physician health programs are allowed to operate in this invasive and abhorrent way continues to boggle one's mind. Whether state and national medical societies and specialty societies are simply ignorant or perhaps even passively complicit is not clear. Maybe they feel that it affects too small a minority of their own member population. But their passivity is so egregious as these are the very entities that are supposed to be advocating for physicians and their rights. And their absent protection of physicians' rights is so notable that legislators in multiple states now have had to intervene to pass laws protecting physicians, allegedly, from these rapaciously intrusive and non-overseen quasi-governmental entities. Whatever the reason for their lack of initiative in addressing this major source of concern, it must be acknowledged that this dynamic this complex operates as a background, if not a prominent source of distress for many physicians. And therefore, it needs to be considered a significant element in the overall clinician distress matrix. The particular irony here is that if you thought there was already sufficient stress contributing to your overall clinician distress, consider now that the very fact of your experiencing distress puts you at risk of career jeopardy not from the impact of the overall distress, as bad as that may be, but from the lurking MRTC agencies who may assert with utterly no legitimate basis or due process protection that you are impaired and a danger to society as a result of your distress. Alas, even worse, they may insert their presence in your life behind the benevolent facade of wanting to help. 
In the event that you've been falsely accused of some impairment, the only psychological experiences you can have are those of rage and a sense of betrayal, as well as fright about the irreparably adverse and potentially bankrupting and even lethal impact on your career. It causes one to ponder the nearly complete silence of state and national medical societies on confronting these harms. At a very minimum, why haven't state and national medical society taken a stand on ADA illegal questions being posed on licensing and credentialing applications? Why is such a pattern of legally and ethically impermissible behavior allowed to continue without the clout of these organizations insisting on immediate reform? Why must it remain the burden for each wronged physician to engage costly counsel who were often ill-equipped to fight this battle, especially considering its overwhelming cost and low likelihood of success in the individual litigation arena? So as you can see, these are two major clusters of distress that are adding to the clinician distress matrix. And though I did not say in the written article, let me add here that one doesn't have just one form of distress. One can have concurrent stress syndromes going on, which makes this particularly difficult to tease apart, especially for the naive therapist or coach who is approaching clinician distress. Too often, these syndromes are therefore seen as just one giant package uh, called burnout. And that is erroneous, and it is counterproductive as not being able to tease these apart and approach them as separate entities, albeit contributing to each other in terms of their overall emotional and psychological impact, is is a flawed process and will result not only in lack of improvement in the burnout syndrome, but it will also delay appropriate remedies. So I really want to underscore that in this segment of uh, part five of the matrix. In the upcoming session, which will be the last uh, in the series, at least focusing on the clinical distress components, we may actually have to have a separate article talking about uh, uh, implications of all of this and some possible remedies. But if it's possible, we'll put those together in the same piece. Uh, We'll be covering uh, two other major sources of distress, and that is discrimination in its variant forms, Um, racial and uh, ethnic and gender and um, sexual preference and um, disability discrimination. And we'll also be talking a bit about some, the, the underbelly of medicine, and that is the bully culture that has been in prevalent existence for a sustained period of time and must be seen as a source of clinician distress. So that wraps it up for part five. I hope you have enjoyed looking at these issues. I don't think it enjoy is really the appropriate term, um, but I hope they've been beneficial to you. And I really appreciate your listening. Uh, It's an honor uh, to share these ideas with you. And I look forward to having your feedback in the comments section. And please do share uh, this this podcast and the uh, article uh, with your colleagues if you find it to be appropriate. 
Till next time, thank you so much for listening. I'm Kernan Mannion. You've been listening to Physician Interrupted.